Our scripture reading this morning is Psalm 91. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, all capital letters, Jehovah, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him will I trust. Surely he will, shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee, to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. And now God speaks. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high, because he hath known my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. So far we read God's holy word. The text for the sermon are the first two verses of Psalm 91. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in him will I trust. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we read this, I'm sure you recognize that Psalm 91 it is an amazing psalm about God and to God and then from God. This is a confession of a believer, a believer who is fully aware that many dangers exist in this life that threaten him or her, threaten to do harm. Verse 5, thou shalt not be afraid of the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. There are dangers. And yet the believer expresses the confidence that God will care for him. 
And he receives the assurance that God will do that. In verse 3, surely he, God, shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler, from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. Verse 9, because he hath made his, the Lord, even his, which is my refuge, even the most high thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. And it concludes with God himself speaking about the psalmist, about the believer, and giving the assurance that God will indeed care for him. Now all of that starts with the confession of verses 1 and 2, which we consider this morning. It is a realistic confession by those who know that there are dangers in this life. They know they need God, absolutely. They also delight in him, and they confess that in these verses. It expresses some astounding truths about God, about his power, about his glory, his, his, his excellence, and that he is a God who has the power to take care of us in our daily life. No matter what the danger, no matter what the trouble, our God is our refuge and fortress. Let's consider these two verses under the theme, Trusting Jehovah, our refuge and fortress. We'll notice in the first place the almighty protector. Secondly, the obvious need that we have to trust in God and to have a refuge and a fortress. And thirdly, the confident confession. And that's especially verse 2. I will say really to the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God in him will I trust. God is the almighty protector. The names, and there are many names given in these two verses, the names of God all emphasize his tremendous power and his exaltedness. We start with the name Jehovah because that's the, the name that is the most packed with meaning. God gives us names that we may know him, and Jehovah is one of the most important names that God gives us to know him. And when God gives us the name Jehovah, he wants us to know that he is independent, that he is eternal, and that he is the unchanging God. Now, I'm going to develop that. But that's evident from how God first explained that name when he came to Moses at the burning bush and he said to Moses, go tell the people of Israel, this is my name. This is the one who sent you. My name is Jehovah. I am that I am. So now when you draw from that, what does that tell us about God? It tells us, first of all, that he is an independent God. If you are dependent upon someone, you, you need someone to do or uphold you. But God is independent. Independent and in that he depends on no one and nothing for his very existence. No one gave God 
his existence. No one brought him into being. It wasn't a coalition that somehow brought together God. God eternally exists. He's the eternal God. He has no beginning. And he depends on no one for his daily existence. He is simply the eternal I am. I am. That separates God from everything else. Everything else is creature. Creatures have a beginning. We all have a birth date. We all have a time when we were conceived in the womb. We all have a beginning. Everything has a beginning. The angels have a beginning. The mountains, but not God. He has no beginning. All creatures have to be sustained in order to exist, but not God. That separates God from everything else. That's creature. And that's all there is. There's God and there's creature. God is not dependent on anyone either for his joy or for his satisfaction. He is the infinitely blessed God dwelling together in in the blessed unity of the Trinity. He enjoyed his triune light from all eternity. No one can take away from that joy of God. No one can take away from his satisfaction in himself. God did not create because it would make him happier. That's not why he created. God is not lonely. He never was. God is not dependent, therefore, upon anyone for his existence, nor for his joy and blessedness. The word I, the name I am also indicates that God is the unchanging God. I am that I am, he says. I never, I'm never different. What I am today, I always was. What I am today, I will ever be. That's God. We all change. Our bodies change. Our minds change. We can gain or lose strength, gain or lose abilities, or weight, or knowledge. God does not. Astounding. Malachi 3, 7 says, I am the Lord, Jehovah. I change not. Does not change. That implies, of course, that God is therefore Absolutely dependable, dependable. If God speaks, it's true. If God promises something, it will happen. Because he's the unchanging God. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change his plan. Never. The fact that he is almighty God means no one can prevent him from doing anything. So when God says, this is what I say, this is what I will do, he will do it. He is the I am. God emphasized this exactly in connection with his deliverance of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. I am that I am. The promises that I made to Abraham long ago about delivering you from Egypt, I'm here to keep those promises. And I am that I am. I have the power to deliver you. And I will show you that there is no God beside me. I'll make the the images of, of Egypt to be, obviously, wood and stone, powerless. 
I am that I am. That's our God. The name Jehovah significantly is embedded in the name of, all, of the Savior that God sent. Jesus means Jehovah salvation. That's what his name means. Jesus revealed everything that's in the name Jehovah. He came to reveal in his person and work. He is the Son from eternity. He has no beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That's Jesus, eternal. In Jesus, the doctrine of the Trinity is revealed. He is the eternal Son, begotten of the Father. He has the Spirit, and he sends forth the Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit comes into clear display in the life and work of Jesus in the earth. The faithfulness of God is seen in the Son, who kept every promise of God and fulfilled every obligation and accomplished the work of salvation perfectly. Nothing stops him. Not the gates of hell that burst out upon Jesus. Nothing could prevent him from accomplishing what he came to do. He is Jehovah, salvation. He conquered sin. He conquered the power of death and the devil and his host. God is Jehovah. But all the names in the text just keep adding to that, keep revealing more about the greatness of our God. The fact that he is called God immediately distinguishes him from everything that is creature. No matter how great a man may become in this world, he is still a man. God is God, exalted above everything that God has created. He is entirely different from the creature, lifted up above all. That's what the word God, the name God, indicates. Not a creature, but different. God. He is called in the text Most High. And that obviously emphasizes the exalted nature of our God. Melchizedek used that term, that name, to bless Abraham and said, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth. He possesses heaven and earth, the wide spans of the universe. God owns it. Other places in the Bible use it to indicate the exalted nature of God. Deuteronomy 32, when the Most High divided the nations... He's the one that put the nations here, there, and there and separated them. God, the Most High, did that. And especially the Psalms. In Psalm 18, the Most High thunders from the heavens. Psalm 47, the great, the Lord, Most High is terrible. He is a great king over all the earth. Psalm 57, I will cry unto God, Most High, Unto God that performeth all things for me. God is the most high God. Lucifer desired the position of being the most high. The Bible tells us that's what the devil wanted. I want to be the most high and the one who has all the honor and the worship. 
but only God is. And Psalm 7 says, the Most High is to be praised. He is Jehovah. He is God. He is God Most High. And the text says he is also the Almighty. The Almighty. That joins in lifting up God. It indicates that God does not merely have much power, even more power than anybody else. He is Almighty. He created all things by the word of his power. We sing, thy might sets fast the mountain, strength girds thee evermore. So we understand that in the history of this world, when there's Satan and there's God and there's the powers of evil and the powers of good, it's not as if there is a battle going on where God will probably win or even most certainly because he has more power than Satan. Satan is not an independent power. God is almighty. He has all power. An ungodly ruler who thinks that he has sovereign power over his nation and he can make rules and he can do what he wants is not independent. God is almighty. That man has power only as long as God gives it to him. God is the almighty God. So it's obvious from those names that if you're looking for someone to give protection, there isn't anyone that compares with this God. But the text says not merely that he is able to, it says he does protect us. He is my refuge and my fortress. The refuge is used twice in this psalm here and in verse 9, because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the most high, thy habitation. A refuge is a place to which one can flee for safety. That's the emphasis of the word refuge. It's, it just sounds like that. A refuge, a place where you would go for help, go for safety, a refuge. You go there when you are pursued by enemies who will seek to harm you. In the time of trouble, Psalm 46 says that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, in trouble. A refuge, therefore, is a place to which one would run when he is being pursued or threatened. A fortress is a place of strength. Fortress. That has the, the word itself indicates strength, doesn't it? And when you think of that, you think of a castle built on the top of a, of a mountain. A place of strength. Built up there so that as the enemy is approaching, you could see them miles and miles away. There's an army coming and get everyone inside the castle and bring up the, the gates and close the solid doors and we'll be ready for them. And the enemy would have to struggle up the side of the mountain and then try to attack this stone castle with its strong bars and doors. A very difficult thing. The people inside are well defended. They are safe. 
They are secure. That is a fortress. This is our God. He is not merely someone who has the power to save. He is not merely the one who is exalted over all. He is a place of refuge. We can run to him. And we can find security and strength and protection there. God's people know this from experience. And they love to sing about it. In Psalm 61, the psalmist says, For thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. For Psalm 62, In God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. In Psalm 94, My God is the rock of my refuge. God's people sing of that because they have also learned from experience they need that kind of protection. We need protection even from a physical point of view. We are helpless and defenseless. If you think about it, we control nothing in our life. Absolutely nothing. We are susceptible to disease. We are susceptible to broken bones and to death itself. Sometimes our helplessness and defenselessness can can almost overwhelm us. Think of a father or mother that sees a 16-year-old teenager drive away in a car and thinking about all the things that could happen. A crash, serious, even deadly. Criminals out there. Mass shootings in mall that simply pop up. One can be overwhelmed personally to think of all the negative things that could happen to us from a physical point of view. We hear reports of cancer, we hear reports of dementia, we hear reports of people having heart attacks, and we think, well, is that my fate? Is that where I'm going? Will I have that happen to me? We're helpless to prevent it. And there are the spiritual threats. The spiritual threats that come, especially when we have physical calamities. The devil works very hard to do spiritual damage, especially when we are physically injured. Because the devil knows that we are one being, body and soul, body the physical, the spiritual, and the emotional. We're all wrapped into one. And when one part of that is affected, the whole of us is affected, so that even when we are physically hurting, it affects us spiritually, it affects us emotionally. And so the devil strikes. 
when we are down physically or mentally, a severe blow that makes us weak. And the devil will try to make us bitter, angry at God's way, at what's happening in our life, or make us to be discouraged and depressed. In all of this, the believer is under the shadow of the Almighty. The shadow is a place of protection. Where do we go when the burning sun is just more than we can take? We look for a shade. That's protection from the burning sun. That's the sense. Under the shadow, there's protection there. Psalm 121, verse 5, uses that language. The Lord is thy keeper. He is thy shade upon thy right hand. Protecting shade. And the figure of, a, of the wings. In verse 4, he shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. And God is drawing from an earthly picture here and saying, look at this mother bird, look at how this bird will cover her young. Whenever there's danger, doesn't care about herself, but will cover her young with her wings. God covers us with the wings of his love and his sovereign power. We are very really under the shadow of the Almighty. We confess the sovereignty of God in all of the troubles of life. We know the doctrine of providence well. Rain and sunshine, drought, sickness, doesn't matter. It all happens according to his fatherly direction. And he causes all those things to work together for our advantage. And he's able to do that because he's the almighty God. That's what we confess in Lord's Days 9 and 10. Yes, evil can come upon us and hurt us physically, but God rules. And the creatures are so much in his hand that, that not a, a creature cannot so much as move except to be according to his will. Of greater concern to us are the spiritual dangers that indicate that we need protection. We are in a world, we are in a world that is opposed to God. Man fell into sin and he brought upon himself the race, dreadful depravity, a race that is under the curse of God and is multiplying in sin and iniquity. Man is a slave of the devil, the avowed enemy of God, and the, the world in which we live is the enemy of God, is anti-Christian. The unbelievers of this world hate God. They hate his church because the church is the bride of Jesus Christ. It's a hatred that God himself not only prophesied but puts into the race because God gathers out of the mass of fallen, depraved man, gathers out his people. And he makes his people to be his friends 
And as soon as those ungodly people now become the friends of God, the rest of the world hates them immediately. There is enmity, God said. I will put enmity there between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We can forget that living in America where this hatred has been somewhat muted and masked. And I think especially here in Northwest Iowa because we're surrounded by Good people, friendly neighbors, helpful people, give you the shirt off their back, need some help, sure. Now, I know he doesn't go to church, I know he's, he's an unbeliever, but he's, he, he's friendly, he's kind, he's good. We can forget what's really in the heart of man. And in this country, we have the freedom to worship, and we can buy Bibles, and we can have our Christian schools, and we can witness. For almost three centuries now, the church has been able to live in this kind of a country where we have the freedom to do these things. And we can forget that the unbeliever, no matter how he might smile, no matter how he may, sure, I'll have lunch with you, I'll sit down and have a have a cup of coffee, that unbeliever still hates and despises God. And that hatred is becoming more evident, increasingly open opposition and open hatred, especially when the child of God will say, that's wrong, that's sin. When you talk about Abortion, sexuality, homosexuality, family, divorce, remarriage. Then you see the hatred. This is something the church must expect. Paul wrote to Timothy long ago, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. All who will live godly in Christ Jesus. Peter reminds those who, to whom he writes in his first epistle, as they were being persecuted, he said, don't, don't, don't look at this as something surprising, as if this is something new. No, th- this is what the church endures. Persecution. Hatred. And the devil is behind it. The devil has a fierce hatred of the church. He's determined to destroy the church. He wants to be the Most High. He wants the entire world to bow the knee to him and declare him to be the Most High. And eventually he will eliminate every soul on the earth that does not confess that he is the most high. Persecution, of course, is not the devil's first choice in his efforts to destroy the church. The devil is a liar. He's a smooth liar. And he would much rather destroy the church by causing the church to forsake her antithetical life. 
to, to forsake her spiritual isolation, her living of the antithesis, to be, as Jesus said, to be in the world but not of the world. If the devil can entice the world to give the church to give that up, become like the world, dress, be entertained, live like the world, he will do tremendous damage. So he uses decep- deception, temptations, the deceitfulness of sins, power and riches, sinful pleasures, the entertainment of the world. He sets up before us the idols that he would have men to worship. And now think how easy it is to have these things to become idols, important in our life, sports. Whether it's the playing of sports or the watching of sports or the heroes, cars or trucks, food, or clothes, physical fitness, health, the internet, social media, the cell phone. We can all easily say, oh no, those aren't my idols. No, no, I worship God. I don't worship these things. But you can tell how what's a God of people by what's important in their lives. What's important in a person's life? That's their God. And they may have many gods. They may have many. Israel had all sorts of gods. The devil uses that. The devil is opposed to everything that God delights in. The devil is opposed to a life of holiness, which is in separation from sin and devotion to God. The devil is opposed to Sabbath observance, especially the worship of God in his house. The devil hates a godly covenant home where he finds a marriage, a godly marriage that reflects the unbreakable union of Christ and his church. He hates to see a husband who loves his wife and seeks her physical and spiritual good. He hates to see a wife who loves her husband and submits to her husband for Christ's sake. He hates to see children who obey their parents for the Lord's sake. He hates a good Christian school. He hates a faithful church of Jesus Christ that preaches the truth without compromise and unashamedly. The devil hates anything that the Bible says God delights in. And when he finds that in anybody's life, he zeroes in on that and he attacks that. And he seeks to destroy that. You understand, people of God, we have enemies. And I know how hard it is to think that way. I lived here in Northwest Iowa long long enough to know that we like to get along. And we look at neighbors as being good neighbors. We don't really think so much about religion. Yeah, he goes to that church or he goes once in a while. doesn't matter. We have enemies. And they are, we have enemies because we are part of the body of Jesus Christ, because we confess Jesus Christ to be our God and Savior. We have the devil and the host, host 
They're all our enemies, powerful enemies. So powerful that the angel Michael, the archangel Michael, did not dare rebuke the devil directly, but had to say, the Lord rebuked you. That's how powerful are our enemies, Satan and his host. Our enemies are the, the whole world of the unbelievers. Every unbeliever is an enemy of the church. I don't care how he smiles at you. I don't care how happy he may seem, be, seem to see you. An unbeliever is your enemy. Jesus said, if they have hated me, they will hate you also. There are two significant allies to our enemies that we need to be aware of. One is the false church. The false church that smiles, small false church that says, we're inclusive. We'll take anybody. We're, we, we can be, we're a loving church. We love everybody. Until you tell them, well, this is what the Bible says. I stand for this without compromise. Then suddenly the smile disappears. And they show their hatred. The other ally to the devil is our own flesh. That's something we so easily forget. Our own flesh is an ally of the devil. He loves every idol that the devil puts out there. He loves every sinful thing that the devil sets out there. Our flesh is inclined to every evil, to hate God, to hate the neighbor, and prone to every iniquity. That's our flesh in league with the devil. You see how important then is the text, how important it is that we have a protector against all these enemies that are seeking your destruction. God, Jehovah, the Most High, the Almighty, this is what we confess. Verse 2, I will say of the Lord. Really, it's I will say to the Lord. My refuge and my fortress. My God. I will say that continuously. It's not I'm going to say it once and be done. This is, what I, this is my daily confession. This is my God. I trust in him. He is my refuge and my fortress. Who makes that kind of a confession? Who says that? It is the one, in verse 1, that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High, the one that abides under the shadow of the Almighty. To dwell is to live there, to live there. Abraham dwelt in Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the plains of Mamre. They dwelt, that's where they lived. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High. And the parallel statement, shall abide, is literally to lodge there. 
It's not a pop-in visit and out again. I'm going to lodge here. I'm going to sleep here. I'm going to live here. That's the, that's the sense. The one who lives under the shadow of the Almighty. A secret place. A secret place is a hiding place where one is kept hidden away so no one who is attacking can find that person we sang of it, Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may... No, verse 5, sorry. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. Hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. God hides us there. How does one dwell there? How does one dwell under the shadow of the Almighty in the secret place? What does that mean for you and me tomorrow if we sincerely want to dwell there? One dwells there by trusting in Him. One dwells there exclusively by faith. By faith. Faith is believing It's taking hold of truth and believing truth, but faith is also trusting, trusting. Not in self, not in things, not in the world, but trusting in God, trusting in Him. And if you trust in God, then you are trusting in Jesus Christ because that's Jehovah's salvation, that's the revelation of God. Trusting in Jesus Christ for the whole of your salvation, nothing of yourself, Trusting in his cross as the only hope of redemption. Trusting in his preserving power that he is able to hold you up and keep you so that nothing can destroy you. Complete trust. That's faith. You abide in him. As branches abide in the vine, so we abide in In Jesus Christ, connected to him by faith, trusting. This comes out in the believer's life. How do you know if someone is trusting by faith, holding by faith? Well, it's pretty obvious. He loves God. He loves God. He seeks, a believer like this seeks God with his whole heart. He wants to be close to God. He wants to know him better and better and to have fellowship with him. He wants to to live with him, dwell with the living God. And therefore, the Bible is very, very important to him. This is how he knows God. It's by his word. And we seek to know him through Jesus. We adore him as our Savior and as our Lord, and we embrace him with a true and living faith. By faith, we abide under the shadow of the Almighty. That's manifest in the way we live. We're not Sunday Christians. That, yes, we come to church and we can hear the preaching, and then the rest of the week, well, that's the rest of the week. We live differently. We love God on Sunday, we dwell with Him on Sunday, but not the rest of the week. No, no, not someone who dwells, who abides under the shadow of the Almighty. 
His word is in our hearts and upon our lips. We're talking with God in prayer regularly in our daily life. We live with him. There is a certain reciprocal relationship there, you understand. Faith takes hold of Christ. That beautiful gift of faith takes hold of Jesus Christ, trusts in him and enjoys him. And the closer we are to Jesus, the more our faith is strengthened itself. The word continues to strengthen us spiritually. And then we have more and more enjoyment, enjoyment in this God as well. That's Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. At the same time, our confidence grows that we can say what the text says. He is my refuge. He is my fortress. He is my God. In him will I trust. People of God, do that. Abide with him. Dwell with him. Make these verses to be your daily confession, not merely in a time of trouble, but every day, recognizing the dangers that are out there, our helplessness and the terrible dangers, we dwell with him, trusting that he not only will preserve you, but that he is preparing you to dwell with him forever. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Write these words upon our hearts so that we trust in thee and in thee alone. What a glorious God thou art. How foolish we are not to trust completely in thee. So, Lord, grant us that grace day by day for the glory of thy name, for our strength, and for the beauty of the church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.